Just a quick word of warning before we get going that the following podcast will almost certainly contain spoilers and may also contain strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Welcome to episode 33 of Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast giving a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart, I make disgusting wee body horror films and now have a podcast. And uh, joining us today, you know him from his sound work on the likes of The Innkeepers, The Sacrament, Clown and many more. And most recently as the writer-director of the Shudder original series Dead Wax, it's Mr. Graham Resnick. Graham, hello. Hi, how are you? Very good, thanks for doing this. How are, uh, how are you? I'm I'm doing great. It's a nice uh, nice early morning here in LA. It's fun doing <laughs> the international you. podcasts. Yeah, thank you for getting up so bright and early to do this. Oh, of course, yeah. Uh, also, by the way, the co-screenwriter, I believe, of one of my favorite horror video games of the past few years, Until Dawn. Mm-hmm. So thanks for that. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, Guinness World Record uh, winning Until Dawn, which is my favorite thing about Until Dawn. <laughs> but really. Yeah, we won a, a a Guinness World Record, or or one, I guess we were a, you, awarded, appointed. I don't yeah, know how. Did it works. You, you break the record, set the record. We set a record because they have a whole like games book now too, and it's it's a, it's not like the real thing, but it is because it's Guinness. Um, because it's a second games book, and it's like most you know it'll it'll have like esports stuff in there too, and um and they had a, a award they gave us for most um pages for a adventure video game and they cocked it in at 2000 but it was actually much more than that so <laughs> wow i gotta gotta get one of those certificates to put on my wall definitely yeah yeah. yeah yeah so graham you've gone uh for portal grace 3 <laughs> oh yeah um from 1988 um yes i have so <laughs> why this film good question you know i was thinking about that a lot <laughs> um i i actually when when you guys first emailed me, I, I was it was the first thing that popped into my head, and then I was like, "Oh, do I really want to defend this? I haven't seen it in a while." And I watched it, and the short version is, man, this movie is such a part of my DNA, and it's so huge. I mean, like just on every level of filmmaking, like there are things we'll get into it, but like, holy cow, there's some stuff in here that I still think about that I forget. Sometimes I'm like, man, my love of strobe lights, it's Lynch. No, no, no. It's Poltergeist <laughs> 3. And it's it really is. Like everything I do has strobe lights in it. It's because I saw this movie when I was like eight and it fucked me up. Like <laughs> I this is so in there. But it's not a it, you know, it, it doesn't work overall. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But it's a beautifully made film on many levels, just not all of them. And it also is like its own weird new genre, which is high-rise horror and (laughs) there wasn't a lot before that and there hasn't been a lot since then but in the 80s there were a bunch of them and i would even count ghostbusters uh, as part of the genre yeah okay yeah and it's so intrinsic to the experience of being a child in the 80s and looking at cities and that that 
the cocktail party where they're all hanging out with the shoulder pads and the art and the, the <laughs> 80s New York. That's what I thought all adults did all the time when I was young because my parents did stuff like that. So I was because, you know, my dad worked in New York. He worked for Citibank and and we went up to New York all the time. We lived in New Jersey the first 10 years of my life right across the river. And it, it, that was what life seemed to be like. And so this movie is like a beautiful time capsule of that and of the way that I saw the horror of like, I was a kid and I was like, that's what adult life is like. And that's what's terrifying about it. You go into buildings and mirrors crack and, and ghosts come out of, you know, puddles. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot of reasons why I chose this movie. But the main reason is it's, it's like a Rosetta stone for me as a filmmaker. Um, yeah, that's pretty cool. I, I think that, um, I mean, you're right. I think that there are, think, there are things about the film, certain things about the film that don't necessarily work. But as, um, like, from a technical perspective, it's astonishing. Yeah, yeah. Completely. And all practical, too. Yeah, there's, there's some amazing stuff in here that, I mean, as a filmmaker myself as well, just had me scratching my head like, I'm not entirely sure how they did that. Yeah. It's nuts. Did you guys see this movie when you were when you were growing up? I did, Mitch. Um, <laughs> uh, true to form, I saw it for the first time this afternoon. Ah, um, which is the case with uh, almost everything that people bring on here. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I was familiar with the series, but I hadn't seen I hadn't seen Poltergeist three. Um, yeah. So yeah, we can get into that how that worked out. Um, but. Um, <laughs> Graham, one thing that we make everyone do uh, before we get started on really getting into the film is Andy's going to put 30 seconds on the clock and for the benefit of anyone who hasn't seen the film and that is listening in, we're going to ask you to give us your best 30 second synopsis of Poltergeist 3. Um, Are you ready? I am. All right. Sounds confident. Here we go. Three, two, one, go. This is the story of a teenage girl named Donna who gets sucked into the Black Lodge, meets a bunch of strobe lights, and comes back out starting the uh, the story of Twin Peaks. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's how that's, I read it. That's, just, you know. that's the first one of those that has ever introduced a connecting universe theory. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I have a I have a larger theory about all that we can get into. Uh, yes, please. I, I I think Lynch must have seen this movie. I had to I've, I had to keep asking Mitch what Lara Flynn Boyle's character's name was because I felt that I was mixing it up with Twin Peaks in regards to her character being called Donna. I know it's so weird, and she shot Twin Peaks a year later, so yeah. <sighs> or two years later, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the serious answer is it's about the little girl from Poltergeist who goes to New York or to Chicago to live with her aunt uh, and uh, go to a school about like having uh, supernatural connections and they're trying to uh, brainwash her out of it. And then the ghosts come and they hunt them. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would have clocked in under 30. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, I think you might have been able to burn through both of those in less than 30 seconds. <laughs> it's a simple movie, and that's what's great about it. It's just like, hey, ghosts in a high-rise. <laughs> um, so, straight in, I guess. Yeah. And, yeah, you get kind of your first kind of... You're, we're reunited with Carol Ann early on, who's kind of just having a little bit of kind of fun with a window cleaner, just kind of giving him a wave and things like that. He disappears, she looks down, and we get our first of uh, many looks. <laughs> Of uh, Henry Kane. Yeah, yeah, not obviously not played by uh, Julian Beck now, given that he died during the making of Poltergeist 2. Nathan Davis this time, I think he it, it, it lacks a little bit of, the, of Julian Beck's charm. Yeah, it's. I, I'm torn about Poltergeist 2 even. Um, I'm of the mind 
have you guys ever read this book shock value by jason zinneman i know no it, it is wonderful i highly highly recommend it it's one of the best books on horror i've ever read this is a little okay. bit of a tangent but it's worth it it's fine because uh, it'll kind of factor into a lot of what i have to say about poltergeist 3 jason's main thesis about horror is that new horror was a thing that existed from about the time of uh, rosemary's baby to about the time of alien and he started as a book about dan o'bannon <clears throat> and it tracks everybody who was working that time, Craven right. and Cronenberg and just everybody. And uh, his whole thesis is these filmmakers loved Psycho. They loved the Hitchcockian style of filmmaking. But they hated the last scene because it explains everything. Mm-hmm. And his idea is that real horror, real actual – the type of storytelling horror that creates really brilliant narratives is horror that's unknowable, that you can't bargain with, that you can't barter with, that you can't reason with. And that's what makes the alien an alien – so terrifying because uh, it's completely alien to us. Yeah. And he, I mean, another thing he says in that book is uh, one of the greatest observations I've ever heard about horror and music um, is that the music in Jaws is there to let you know the killer is just about to get you. But the music in Halloween is there to let you know the killer is never going away, which cool. is just like, whoa, that's, oh, like that. that's pretty cool. Yeah. Amazing. And uh, like along those lines, I feel like when they really leaned into the Kane character in two, and then in this one, it just kind of defanged the idea of this unknowable horror beyond life and death. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it it makes an easy antagonist, but it also feels kind of cheap at the same time. And I, I would say everything with Kane is probably my least favorite thing about Poltergeist three, and also why it kind of doesn't end well. <laughs> just kind of was like, oh, then Kane's gone. At the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. I think it does kind of it does kind of demystify it a little bit. In the same way as more recently, I thought that was the case in uh, Sinister Two. Oh, I didn't see it. Ah, I wouldn't rec- I wouldn't race to it to be honest. Um, <laughs> the first one is great, but um, it does that thing where um, it takes a character or a antagonist that was kind of very abstract and kind of shoves it to the forefront in a way that completely demystifies it and, like you say, kind of defangs it. Yeah, I feel like it's the tendency of a lot of companies that make films. They see the success of one film, which is often based on the audience going, oh, man, this is there's so many mysteries here and they're so wonderful and they live on in our minds because it's so tantalizing. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, the people who are in charge of you know, making sequels or whatever, they go, let's give them what they want. And they don't realize that what the audience wants is not an answer. It's just to be like, you know, to experience that mystery. I mean, it's what shows like Lost did well until they stopped doing it well. <laughs> um, but like, you know, you often see that with, with sequels that where they just have to explain everything that was good about the first one. Yeah. It's like explaining a joke. You know, it's not funny anymore. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But um, here it's established pretty quick that Caroline is staying in the short term, at least with her aunt and uncle. Yeah. Patricia and Bruce, uh, the manliest of names. Bruce. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, Scarrett and Nancy Allen. Yeah, yeah, um, and I think they do. I think they both do great work. Yeah, both um, doing fine work here. I think. Yeah, the cast of this film is great. Like they have some pretty amazing actors in it. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I I've never really known how to take Heather O'Rourke yeah. as an actor. I've always thought she was a bit. She's a bit hit or miss, like, and sometimes quite vacant looking, and it kind of yeah. She she's I mean she's also like twelve here playing like eight, which is yeah. weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and apparently, I mean, she, I didn't know this until I, I, last night I went back through the bonus features on the Blu-ray and it was interviews with Nancy Allen and with, uh, the writer and, and some of the, and some special effects people. And, uh, 
I believe Heather Buckley did some of the stuff. I don't think you guys have had Heather on the show. I've um, had Heather on the show. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great, great set of, um, great set of, uh, special features. Oh, um, but the, uh, they go into the detail about her death, which was actually a year after production. They had one pickup shot they did without her, I guess later. But, um, yeah. uh, I was under, under the conception, like a lot of people that she died during production, but it's not the case, but she was apparently developing or suffering from Crohn's disease, yeah. which mm-hmm. it accounts for some of her, her stranger appearance, I guess. Yeah, I, she's, that's what the writer said. She's got that kind of, um, that puffiness that kind of comes from like steroids. Like, yeah. Kind of pre- yeah. It's really, it's really a sad, I mean, watching her in that movie is like watching a ghost and there's a weird melancholy to that as a viewer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, definitely. That's just kind of tragic. I think she was really great in the first one. And then, you know, just as a child actress and then it's, I don't know, it's not as easy in the next two. Yeah, it feels a bit forced in this because she's she's quite kind of precocious and it, it just never seems entirely truthful or genuine. Yeah, you know, Nancy Allen said something on the uh, special features, which I thought was really interesting and something that, you know, as, as directors you think about all the time and you worry about. And she said it's nothing against Gary Sherman, who directed it, but he was apparently often more focused on the um, sort of... Uh, uh, ballet of the special effects and getting all right. of that right than on the performances um, because that all was so complicated and he tried to balance it as best as he could but i think that's where he ultimately pushed his focus and that may account for some of that um because hmm. you know, uh, some of the jokes not landing and that kind of stuff. <laughs> there are some kind of ropey performances that crop up later on which might that kind of might be the truth like I, I think i feel like the kind of party scene with the kids I oh feel yeah like those kids are just like terribly acted and terribly written yeah there's a couple of weak links in the chain there <laughs> i don't know what i think is weird about caroline in this film i don't know i can't tell where an issue with performance starts and an issue with writing ends because <laughs> i think that like you know for pretty much everything that comes out of her mouth but kind of before this film kind of kicks off in earnest is some kind of wisecrack within the first like couple of minutes she said both old habits die hard and a woman's entitled to change her mind and I think yeah. that the way that's written feels kind of a little bit forced and inauthentic. And I feel like that's where the issue lies rather than with a performance. But I could, that, that's my read anyway. Yeah, it's hard to direct bad writing. I mean, that's just what it is. And, and, and yeah, watching the interview with the writer, he doesn't seem super proud of his work and that kind of stuff. I think they <laughs> oh, did really? quickly, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting interview. It's worth watching. But I think he's a little hard on himself because there's a lot of stuff in the, in the conceptual writing that's great. But yeah, it, it seems like one of those things, like with the sequel, where they just come together really quick and everybody's doing their best, but it doesn't seem like it got nearly as much scrutiny in the script stage as it probably should have. Yeah, it's. I, I, th- I think. I think it feels that way. But um, yeah, we kind of we get we meet all of them. We meet Trish. We meet Bruce. We meet their daughter Donna. Yep. And um, pretty much straight in there, they get temporarily stuck in the lift in a nice piece of foreshadowing. Yeah, and we get our first kind of look at the the cracking mirror. This oh, must yeah. have been the first thing that struck me watching this again was. This must have been an absolute nightmare to film because practically every surface is reflective. Yeah, and and how do they do that mirror crack? I mean, it's insane. Yeah, like, what, what, I watched it like six times, and like, it is some sort of reflective surface, and uh-huh. they're they are cracking it on screen, yeah. like in a line. It's insane. Yeah, it's, uh, to me, I don't know how you do that without the whole thing just going to pieces. Yeah, there's got to be. I mean, I'm sure someone knows somewhere, but there's got to be some sort of special material they used or something, but. Uh, I also should just say that I realized, I was wondering when the last time I watched this was, because it wasn't when I was a kid, it was sometime when I was an adult, and I realized when it was when we got to that first elevator scene, 
because there's a sound when the elevator stops. It's this like, <laughs> like this big metal bendy, amazing sound. Cause some of the sound design in this movie is really good. Yeah. And I remember now I had the DVD. It was a Poltergeist two and Poltergeist three split DVD. And it must've been 2004 because I was working on the roost with Ty, his first yeah. film. And I took that sound, I ripped it and I use it in the roost, uh, for anyone who's seen the roost when the kids find the first mangled deer that is the sound from poltergeist 3 i just took wow. it off the dvd i altered it slightly with some like pitch shifting but it's that sound and i've heard it so many times and then when i got to that scene i was like what huh <laughs> like, <laughs> like triggered something a little interesting peek behind the curtain there that is interesting yeah. yeah yeah i gotta use it again it'll be my wilhelm screen <laughs> <laughs> um when they head kind of out into the world, there's, um, I think, what is it, a hilariously um, abrupt and sudden uh, character introduction uh, oh. when we meet both uh, Scott, but particularly uh, Scott's little sister, Marcy, who like, literally the second that she's on camera is pointing out the car window and shouting abuse at uh, Donna and uh, Caroline. <laughs> I hate Marcy. It's, it's so 80s. It's amazing. Yeah. That is the most stressful car journey I think I've ever seen uh, committed to, to film. They're just screaming at each other <laughs> yeah. the whole time. I, yeah, I had, I had fuck this carpool written in my notes. It looks like it genuinely <laughs> looks like the most stressful thing ever. It felt so hammy and yet so authentic at the yeah. same time. <laughs> It's yeah. such a weird, like, verisimilitude in its staginess. It was so strange. Yeah, I agree, actually. Yeah, because, like, everybody needling each other really, like, that constantly. Yeah. Kind yeah. of, like, feels very written. But at the same time, yeah, you're like, fuck, everyone, like, everyone's been in a car where that's happened. <laughs> oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that they keep uh, they keep battering you to death with how cold the building is. They're like, it's, the building's oh, unseasonably, yeah. unseasonably hot, and it's pretty much all anyone can talk about. <laughs> it's like the, it's like the, the big news in the building. Now, does yeah. does Bruce like own the building or manage the building? I think he's building's operations manager, right? Which is you know, like that's why he's like looks dressed all nice and he's like got to stay sharp, you know, because he's like the liaison to everybody. But you know, he's not. I don't think he's like Mister Wealthy or anything. I think he's just like I'm the guy who's in charge of all the operations. And I think for like a hundred story building, that's a big deal. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree though. I don't think he comes off like he's super wealthy. It just sounds like he's got quite a lot to do. <laughs> yeah. It's like uh, yeah. my kind of read. Actually, watching this for the first time uh, today, I kind of I needed to get my bearings of that a little bit because after we'd kind of been to a couple of locations, as said to Andy, I was like, just to be clear, I was like, is the house where the party they go to, Trish and Bruce's house, the swimming pool. There and the gallery are they all in the same building? Yes. Yeah, yeah, and that <laughs> mall. I mean, it's supposed to be like a mega building, but it it was weird because I think it's all shot in a real building. Um, yeah. But except for the sets, which you know, I think some of those hallways and stuff are sets. But they don't. It, it's one of the weird things about the camera direction. There's some incredible camera direction in this movie, and there's times where it's like a whole scenes in weirdly tight close-ups mm-hmm. that don't really connect the people to the space. Yeah. Which is mm-hmm. seems like it's a missed opportunity, but it might have been a, a facet of what they were able to shoot and when. And and for that, the blending of sets and and actual locations is pretty good, but it it still felt like they were just like not showing off the building as much as they could. Even like the stuff at the end where they're on the the window washer unit, like they were actually up there doing that for a lot of it. Mm-hmm. But those shots aren't as wide as you'd expect them to be. There's no, like, sweeping panorama, you know? Yeah, considering that's, like, a, a relatively ambitious set piece, I don't feel like they do get the best out of that. No, it's really weird. They never they never do, like, a kind of Nakatomi Plaza kind of... Yeah. 
<laughs> I stayed up last night watching all these special features and then rewatching the end of the movie. The the script is on the Blu-ray. You can you can go through it. It's, oh wow! It's a it's like a mishmash of different uh, drafts, which is kind of interesting. And you know, those wide shots and establishing shots are in the script. Like when when Tangina first comes back, she doesn't just like appear in the building. There's supposed to be a thing where she walks up to the building, looks up. And like Carol Ann's room is just like beaming, like glowing light, like up in the sky, like Ghostbusters or something. It's an amazing image, but it's not in the film. Yeah. Um, it makes you wonder, like I, apparently they had huge budget cuts going into production and well, we'll get to this later, but the, the ending was like wildly different in the script. There was actually an ending, <laughs> <laughs> like a big battle. Right. First real spooky moment here. And I think it's a good one um, with a crouched over art piece behind Nancy Allen. Oh, yeah. That I remember the first time I saw that, I would have been pretty, I would have been pretty young at the time. Oh yeah, uh, bears mentioning at this point. Sorry, yeah, that like so we've got um uh, yeah she's a gallery owner, isn't she, uh, Pat? Yeah, I feel that there's a bit of a nepotism involved in her having this gallery space in the building that her husband also <laughs> operates. <laughs> but yeah, sorry, uh, carry on. When I first saw it, I thought that that's quite a spooky little moment, and uh, it's, it still feels that way to me. Like it still feels quite effective. It really, it's, and I think that was supposed to tie into this later ending. I think those those art pieces were supposed to have a bigger presence, but they couldn't pull it off. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, that is a shame. Yeah, but uh, we get Carol Ann now going to the this school that she's at, this kind of low grade uh, Professor X's academy place, <laughs> and uh, yeah, we find out that she's having a pretty bit of a shit time there because she's bullied pretty mercilessly. That whole situation is weird. Yeah, um, she's she seems to be bullied basically for the events of Poltergeist, but I think that I think that she's kind of she's kind of endearingly kind of impervious to the whole thing because at no point do you see her being kind of adversely affected by it. She shrugs it all off like pretty well, I think. And it, it is interesting that they like seem to make it public knowledge that the events of Poltergeist one and two happened, which is weird. Like, what what's the the story between stories there? Like, did Coach go public and tell people about what happened to his houses? Like, what? what's like yeah it, they just cast it off really quickly yeah the, everyone just knows and i i wondered the same thing i was like is this not has this been national news in the interim well, or like did, yeah, yeah. Or did someone sell a story or was there some kind of expose or something well, like that? what i think's happened because it's kind of touched on briefly that uh obviously um steven feeling has been that there's a kind of a feeling that he's made up this ghost story um mm. to cover for the fact that these houses that he built out in the desert were all fucked and cheap and falling apart oh, and, and one of them yeah, disappeared okay. down a sinkhole or whatever. Um, right. it's, it's touched on. They're like, yeah, I think he's just made this up to kind of deflect from the true story, the real story. But it's a pretty risky thing to come out and say, I'm going to tell about probably the most terrifying thing that's ever happened to my family to deflect from my bad business decisions. <laughs> yeah, risky events yeah, there. It's like almost like a Hill House. I don't know if you guys saw the new Hill House, but yeah. it's kind of like that. But in that, they explored a little more deeply in the ramifications to the family and everything. And obviously, they can't hear, but yeah, it's too yeah. short. But um, yeah, and actually, that's it. Brings up something about the the conditions of this movie, which I don't know anything about the what led into it. But like, I have to imagine that the other actors must have been like, "Yeah, we're we're finished with the series," you know. So MGM was like, "Well, we want to do another sequel. We have the little girl, and that's it." <laughs> so like. Like, did they go to Sherman and the, the other writer and just be like, here's, and, and apparently they had the building as a location. And they were like, here's what you've got. Do something. Do something. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's a, it's an interesting tall order. Yeah. Apparently coach just said, um, two is plenty. Really? Uh, yeah. yeah. That makes sense. You made me eat a tequila worm. Not doing it again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we are introduced to my favorite character in the film here. The, uh, <laughs> Dr. Seaton. 
Uh, oh yeah. He is just He's like in charge of the school, isn't he? The, the school that Caroline goes to. Yeah, yeah. He's the he's your Professor X type character here, which is a terrifying proposition given that he <laughs> he is such an asshole. Uh, and I love every single moment that he's in the film. I can't get enough of him. Put dinner on a low flame. Don't forget the cilantro. <laughs> I love that cilantro is like a like an indicator of being a dick. <laughs> In the eighties, apparently. But he, yeah, he uh, is absolutely stalwart in his belief that Caroline has never been in contact with any spirits, but is quite willing to believe that she has the power to induce mass hypnosis upon a crowd. Which is interesting, but it, he he is like kind of misplaced in his like. See, it's mass hypnosis. Like it's, it wears a little thin at a certain point. Um, I think I I do think it's quite funny that like he continually kind of like clatters to wrong conclusions about what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> like, and he he always delivers them with such conviction, and you hear it as like you're a fucking idiot, man. <laughs> <laughs> so do you do you guys? I didn't know until I looked it up, but that guy Richard Fire. Do you know what he wrote? No, no. He wrote Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. No oh, really? way. Mm-hmm. It was John McNaughton? He's a Chicago guy. Yeah, that's a that's a great film. That's one of my favorite films, and I'm yeah. surprised I didn't know that. Yeah, <laughs> I, did, I just no didn't make the connection. I was going to uh, say I don't think anyone can blame you for not connecting the dots. Yeah, there's <laughs> <laughs> like no reason to connect that. I just happened to look him up to see what else he had done, and he he wrote that with McNaughton. And that's really interesting. Also, around this time, we get the kind of seeding of the romance between Scott and Donna. <laughs> um, although I, although I, when he first asks her out, because you see that right around the time they get to the school, mm-hmm. um, and the way she responds to it read to me like she was kind of gently rebuffing him, and obviously that's not the case. Oh no, good lord, no! Um, but uh, yeah, like, but that's obviously that's kind of seeded and kind of comes in a little, a little more later. So we get a couple more kind of indiscriminate flashes of Henry Kane. Yeah. Here and there, yeah. um, over the next little while, and yeah, that's here the point. and there, or you know, every ten uh, seconds. Yeah, he, he is absolutely <laughs> omnipresent throughout the film. He's yeah. lucky. Could have done with a little less Henry uh, Kane and a little less like Caroline on the sound, like just the words Caroline over and over. Oh, uh, yeah, I agree. I agree. <laughs> There's 121 Caroline. Oh, wow! Did you find? Did you count that, or does somebody no, tell it's on, it's online. Uh, the the information exists. Even the writer was like, "Oh, I couldn't believe it." And then they do a little supercut. Um, <laughs> oh, that's what I was saying earlier. I was like, "I would love to see a supercut of that." But uh, one exists. That's superb. The Caroline. Well, they, they just do a quick one, but I haven't seen a full one. It's ugh, it's too much. The um the 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 Caroline drinking game would kill you. <laughs> um, we get a reunion with Tangina around here as well. The medium from the first two films. Tangina, Zelda Rubenstein back again as Tangina. Tangina is so rude here. She just she's like in the middle of like an afternoon lunch with one of her friends, and she just gets up and just runs away from the table, <laughs> just straight up to The Shining. They basically just did The Shining with her. <laughs> um, I like Tangina. <laughs> I've always liked Tangina. She just purely exists as a kind of pint-sized exposition delivery vessel. Uh, that's kind of all she does in all the films the whole time. I think. She yeah, does. at least they found a very interesting actress to do that, and she's she's always fun and and she does stuff in an unexpected, weird, interesting way. Mm. Yeah, I think that because um, one thing that in kind of newer possession films and haunted house films and stuff like that, um, I've talked about it quite a bit in the show. One thing that I find really annoying is around about the hour mark, a character that is almost without exception Hispanic is wheeled out to kind of exposition bomb what they need to do in the in the third act to kind of defeat mm. it. 
Um, it drives me crazy. And it was only towards the end where I was like, oh, she's been kind of cliff, cliff noting this the whole time. But it's done in a way that's totally off the wall and doesn't feel particularly heavy handed. She's just there and it is kind of fun. And I think that even though she's serving the same purpose, it's done in a way that is way, way easier to kind of deal with and way more enjoyable, I think. Yeah. And in one of the best scenes in the movie where she ostensibly dies, um, <laughs> which they, they screw up by kind of bringing her back. It, it's so bold. That's to just fucking like, oh, wild. She's dead now. Everybody's like screwed. An immediate and then, death. Oh, yeah. And then Donna coming out of her. I mean, that is one of the most beautiful images in this. It's so it's so quick when she dies. And you're like, oh, my God, she's dead. And then her face <laughs> breaks open and Donna bursts. Out. It's holy shit. It's so, so good. good. Yeah, I, yeah, it's wild. I, I um, can see you, Mitch. You were flagging a little bit um, going into that particular moment. Um, and I could see you were kind of rolling your eyes like fucking hell what is this uh, and then um, the, the moment that instant moment where Tangina's like a, a mummy and then Lara Flynn Boyle bursts out her face you were like whoa whoa yeah I was I was totally back in after that happens. It's, it's such a good effect and so weird and unexpected who expects that I mean that, that's the other thing I loved about this movie as a kid is like I think this has more in some ways to do with Nightmare in Elm Street than the first Poltergeist or other ghost movies. It feels more like this kind of weird psychedelic nightmare reality, which I remember so vividly from the 80s and 80s movies, like the USA Up All Night kind of movies were just like, these movies were about reality being untrustworthy. And that was so great. And I miss that creativity. And and I feel like in, in a lot of kind of nightmarish horror now, people go for horrifying images and not ones that are destabilizing. Yeah, like seeing sure. Tangina killed like that and Donna bursting out of her, you're just like, I can't trust anything anymore. This is fucked. This is fucked. I'm done. <laughs> That's, it's so good. Um, speaking of good effects moments, actually, there's a good one here when you've got Caroline um, having kind of the flashbacks and the trauma when she's under hypnosis in uh, Dr. Seaton's oh, office. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's kind of being observed through the two-way mirror by the bank of people. And it's at that point that, um, or during the conversation that Seaton's having, a hand rises, picks up the coffee mug and throws it to shatter the window or to shatter the mirror. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, that absolutely is. I think the, the use of reflection throughout the whole film is really smart, really clever, and sometimes really, really impressive. Yeah, I, I, you know, one thing that I didn't really get until I looked at the script was that that puddle in the later is supposed to be a mirror as well, and that... The screenwriter was like, well, we wanted mirrors to be like this unexpected thing. Like you think you've escaped to the mirrors, but then a puddle can be a reflection. Yeah. And it, it's it's kind of like Prince of Darkness, too, where like the mirrors are these little portals, which, you know, is an idea that that's always stuck with me. And, and yeah, it mirrors and magic and illusion and, and taking that to this extreme degree is really kind of terrifying. Yeah. It does feel like there was kind of some of those elements, the, the kind of illusion and, and magic elements employed in some of these effects because they are, for the most part, largely practical. And that, to me, is is impressive to pull off what is essentially an, an in-camera trick. Yeah, I don't think there's a single optical effect or I don't think there's any split screens. I think it was all doubles and, and all practical. It's pretty remarkable, really. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. actually, the, the scene um, which comes up quite not long after this when um, Bruce and Pat are walking down the corridor and oh, all, yeah. all the canes are popping out the doors as they're walking I've always thought I that think, was a really cool scene yeah they get all their footsteps in sync they even make that little wire on the ground I mean you can tell there's those little things they do to like trick your brain there's like a electrical cable on yeah. the ground and they've they've wiggled it on both sides of the fake mirror to be exactly right. So you see that and you're just like, what's well, a mirror. And that makes the dissonance in your brain more, more uh, pronounced. Right. Right. That's cool. Yeah, that's really, it's, it's clever. I mean, and that cable though, um, always annoys me. Like, <laughs> I, 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 
and I know it's part of the part of the gag, and it's it's sold so well that I'm constantly like. Get that taped in. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they, they, yeah, there's like the building's not finished or something, so they're living on a floor that's not totally furnished yet. I guess mm. that's part of the... Yeah, that's why they've got that kind of, course, of yeah, yeah. really rickety wooden kind of service elevator that they keep using. Yeah. Which the first, when I watched it again today, I was like, I thought this was a super cool building. And then I was like, ah, right, okay, of course, it's still, their, their part's still under construction. This, this trick with the canes appearing at the doors. I think that like that is so cool and it's pulled off so well that I was forgiving of the fact that I was kind of getting a little bit of cane fatigue at that point. Yeah. But I think that like yeah, I kind of gave it a pass cuz it was cuz it looked so cool. Well, that's only about the 15 minute mark. It's <laughs> <laughs> already been there a lot. There's yeah. a hell of a lot of cane to come. Uh Pat and Bruce have headed downstairs to the gallery exhibit um yeah. at this point and uh, we've got Donna kind of looking after uh Caroline or briefly anyway because she patches that in record time to go to a party with uh, Caroline's blessing. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, as soon as she gets on her own, um, this is the point where I feel like, in terms of the scares and in terms of where the story goes and stuff, this is the point where I feel like it really dramatically shifts gears. Oh, one hundred percent! Like literally, the minute she's left on her own, Kane's popping up, Kane's in reflections. There's a really, I really love the bit. I think it's here where um, Caroline is walking towards the window because she can hear the whispers. Um, she can hear like Kane whispering her name. And she's walking towards the window, but in the reflection, and the opposite of that, you can see Kane essentially behind her. Yeah, and they have like a double on the other side, mirroring her movements. And yeah. it's not perfect, but at the same time, they've already like the movements aren't exact. But they've already established this weird thing when, which I thought was really clever to kind of to kind of excuse it, where um, Lara, uh, where Donna is in the bathroom, and you see a shot of her in the mirror, and Caroline opens the door in the mirror, and she's like, "Hey, you're gonna have a good time, whatever." And then Donna turns around, and the door opens, and in the non-reflection side and Carolyn comes in then and says the same thing as if time was like out of joint. Yeah. Yeah. That's so weird. Really, so effective. And it's, and it happens earlier with Scarrett too, where he's frozen in the mirror and he walks away and he sees himself or he or Nancy Allen sees himself frozen, which is a lot like fire walk with me with Cooper right. and the uh, cameras. And I, that kind of like that, yeah, that gives them permission to kind of be a little off with some of the movements and, it becomes this kind of weird, creepy tell, like, almost like when you're watching an old cartoon and you see like the beautiful hand-painted backgrounds, but there's one like branch that's that's drawn in, and you know something's going to happen with that. It's going to start being animated soon. Mm. So it's like it, you know, it's a little bit like a oh, I can see the seams, but at the same time, you know something's going to happen with that, and it kind of sets you on edge. I think it yeah, it, it works as well. In so much as pretty quickly after this, you see that there is like a a mirror, uh, like an evil mirror reflection of Caroline. Anyway, so, yeah, in so much as that is a kind of alternate offer. Yeah, it's like a different entity. And actually, I didn't know this, but the old Caroline that you see mm-hmm. is supposed to progress older and older and older and become more and more like Kane. That's supposed to end up with her basically looking like Kane at the end. It didn't that didn't quite land for me, but it just looked like she was getting more like grotesque. I only noticed that right near the end that it, that it was looking more like Kane. Um, yeah, and I actually wrote. I said to Mitch when I was writing it in my notes that I had written Carol Kane, and I was like, I just want to be quite. <laughs> I just want to be quite clear that it, uh, I wasn't saying in any way that that horrific creature looked like Carol Kane, <laughs> who's who's pretty much great. Um, I think that um, the counterpart Caroline, Carol Kane, if you will, I think um, genuinely one, genuinely one of the creepier images in the film. I think in general. But I think yeah. especially, almost especially when you first when you first see her, and it's just this kind of like a more marginal distortion of the Caroline that you know. Mm-hmm. I think that I think that's genuinely one of the darker and kind of one of the more effective images in there. Yeah, and the the idea of seeing like a little kid turned old is 
I mean, it's sort of like don't look now. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going kid. to say. Plus the the, yeah. red, the red onesie. Um, yeah, exactly. And it just has this weird thing where you're like, that's not right. And then, I mean, <laughs> tragically coupled with the fact that Heather O'Rourke. I mean, it's hard to separate this from your brain when you're watching Poltergeist three. That Heather O'Rourke never got old. It will never right, get old. Yeah. It's just like this weird thing that like just makes it upsetting and sad and expands beyond the intentions of the film, but still makes it part of the watch. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Straight off the back of this happening, you get we get another jump back to Tangina, who kind of has the same shining thing again. Gets she's a f- on a plane now, though. Yeah. Like, she's yeah. immediately on a plane. Um, Sweet you- Skyphone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which she utilizes to uh, call Dr. Seaton, who continues to just be hilariously skeptical in the face of mounting convincing evidence. Oh, yeah. This is right uh, leading up to the, the, the cilantro line. Uh, <laughs> he's convinced it's Caroline kind of prank calling him. Oh, yeah. That's a, yeah. What a weird assumption to make. <laughs> Yeah, I completely agree. I remember thinking like, this. It's like it's so elaborate. Anything weird happens in this guy's life from now on, he's just gonna be like, you know, Caroline, stop it. <laughs> he's got a real beanie's bonnet about this little girl. Like, yeah, he, 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 I think he kind of views it as his kind of nemesis. <laughs> it's almost as if he his entire existence is just to be a, a nag in, in Caroline's life. It's um, like he's a, a two dimensional character in a movie. <laughs> I think that um, uh, I I like the fact that when they talk about Caroline's trauma and why she's got there in the first place, yeah, he he continually frames it in the various ways that it inconveniences him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in fact, the very first uh, when Caroline's been bullied and he's kind of watching out the window, like right back near the start, uh, he treats the fact that she's being bullied as in in some way it's going to lead to like an administrative nightmare for him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They really. Uh... It's funny because they work so hard to justify his death and just be like, he's such an asshole. He deserves it because he's like the only person. I mean, Scott, you could argue with it, what happened with Scott, but he's like the only person who gets killed. And but then his wife seems so nice and you just feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> like this poor woman dealing with this asshole. Yeah, she's put upon. She's pretty yeah. put upon. The bit with the, that we were talking about with the kind of mirror puddle is round about here. And um, this is the point where it just goes bananas, really. I really like the when she's trying to save Caroline and Scott's trying to save Caroline, and it's kind of unexpected that Scott's the first one to get sucked down into the hole. I kind of like where it goes from here in terms of Scott's re-emergence, if you like, and, uh, and, yeah. and Donna's re-emergence, which we've, we've kind of talked about, which is amazing. One thing I don't really like about Scott's re-emergence is... Is it ice that I believe it's ice that he's covered in? Well, I was reading this in the script. It is ice at first, and then it turns into goo, which is a weird choice. I don't know if that was intentional or if they were just like trying to do this progression. Like right. first it's ice, then it's ectoplasm, and then then it's nothing. But in the script, it it seemed to be a callback to uh, the mom getting like dragged up the wall in the first poltergeist right Mm -hmm. he's supposed to shoot out of the pool and like fly up to the ceiling and be like floating around and then slam down onto the ground covered in ice like he he gets shot out of like a a, the sea and then slams down and the sea is turned into ice yeah um of the pool but like what they actually accomplished is quicker and just kind of jarring and yeah it's unclear but i think that they're implying especially considering what the original ending was supposed to be, which is like basically ice world fight that everything in the, on the other side is like frozen and and Arctic. Um, so I think that was intended uh, right. for that effect. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's yeah. pretty, it's pretty confusing because it does kind of just look like Semolina or like, yeah. um, <laughs> or like badly mixed ultra slime. Um, it's pretty, it's pretty gross. Scott's like abruptly spat back out 
Um, kind of just out of nowhere, he just reappears, kind of in the pool. And uh, yeah, and at this point, he tells Bruce what's happened in the face of even more skepticism from uh, Seton, who's now on the scene. Um, <laughs> I love that. He, what was his What was his end game? Because he's come striding over there. He phones to get the number of the building, and then he just goes over to confront a little girl. Yeah, it's he just comes over to be a scold. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, and then get killed. Like that's his only purpose. <laughs> it's just a weird. It's a weird. I mean, I think this points to the script not getting the scrutiny. I think at this point they they have set up all these narrative threads and these character arcs that just don't coalesce at this point. It becomes a funhouse from here on out, and yeah. it's a great funhouse to a point. But it's a shame that they couldn't tie those threads together because I think if they did, this wouldn't be such a maligned film it would have i think if they were able to yeah like tie those arcs together and really come up with a strong third act this would be more of a classic um it's sort of a curiosity the way it is but (laughs) yeah at this point it's just like random shit happening but it's all great um, I, I do kind of, I do kind of feel like the closer it pulls in towards the end i think the more that the kind of lack of cohesion for those strands kind of really starts to become kind of a problem (laughs) yeah i mean like just having Scott and Donna come back and have nothing. I mean, well, this is another thing where you read the script and like in the movie, this is jumping ahead a little bit, but once they reemerge and you realize that they're evil, which is just one of the greatest things where Donna starts laughing and then Scott comes out of the thing and he starts laughing and it's like Prince of Darkness, mm-hmm. which mirrors again. It's so great. And then he kisses her and then pulls her cheek off. And then they walk down the hall and you see that their jackets have backwards lettering. Yes. Mirrors, yeah, which that, is so good. That's, yeah. That's and a then they just, great little touch. Yeah. And then they just walk away. Well, in the oh, also like oh, ADR, like they had, and this wasn't in the script. They had to put in, they thought it was us. <laughs> and like, well, that, that's not, yeah, I know. We know. Yeah. We were here. We watched it. Like, thanks. We, we get that you're evil. Like it's not. Yeah, it's like, um, excuse me, who's this for? <laughs> yeah, it's for executives who don't think that audiences have any brain. Yeah. Um, but the uh, the in the script, what's supposed to happen is he gets out of the elevator, they start kissing, and they start having weird, crazy, violent sex, and they disintegrate and rot into a pile of maggots, and that, that turns into Kane's face, uh, which is an insane thing, and there was no way they were like, I don't know how they would have ever done that. Uh-huh, but I would they, love to see it. I'd love to see yeah, them try. It sounds amazing, but like, but I think they were just supposed to be dispensed with at that point. Whereas in the movie, it seems like they're going to show up again, and then they don't because they're just done. <laughs> yeah. So like, because like having them just walk away, you're like, oh, they're going to like pop up a couple more times. I'm excited for this. Like, but yeah. Anyway, yeah, yeah. That was a dis- that was one of the disconnects that I felt actually because I kind of assumed that they would reappear, and as it got near the end, and it became apparent that they weren't gonna, I was like. Where did they go? Like, it's, yeah, it's re- it's really strange. Tangina, um, like when she just appears on the scene, she appears right at a moment when um, Bruce and Pat are trying to stop or they're trying to pull Caroline out through her bedroom door. Oh yeah, and she just stands there for fucking ages. She doesn't help. <clears throat> like, despite despite evident, just, evidently knowing that it's 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 Carol Kane. It's not Carol. It's not Carol. Carol Kane. <laughs> like um, yeah, but she doesn't intervene for ages. Yeah, she's just like judging Nancy Allen in a weird kind of half-hearted attempt to set up the only actual character arc thing that happens in the last act, which is Nancy Allen being like, I do love you, Carol Ann, which is yeah. like, I don't buy that. I don't buy that you love her. You're a massive inconvenience. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> when she says that um, and it looks like she doesn't buy it, it's like, yeah, neither do I. There's an overwhelming amount of evidence to the contrary if you look back at yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> 
she, she's yeah, calling her like let's get rid of that little brat like at the earliest <laughs> opportunity like it doesn't sound like the words of someone who uh desperately wants she could i mean to me it seems like she'd be quite happy if caroline just disappeared yeah and and up until that very moment at the end she still seems that way and then she's like oh wait i can't get scarrett back until i say that i love caroline cool whatever i love you caroline <laughs> <laughs> now give me back my real door yeah it's yeah. um but i just i i Having read the script, I wrote down one thing because some of the writing in the script is really great and evocative. This is what the writer wrote for the reveal of Caroline coming out of the big bladder door thing. Mm-hmm. He wrote, this is for when you see that it's not Caroline. It's a debased clone, a horrifying, cruel scribbling of Caroline bearing little resemblance to the beautiful original. Wow, that's like, pretty cool. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of very flowery and interesting writing in the script that um, I quite enjoyed. Because it's fun to see how the the writer paints the picture and then see how it comes to life later. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, very evocative. I like it. Around here, I think that um, we talked already about Tangina being like a device for um, exposition and how that's mostly fine. Um, <laughs> around this point, when we kind of understand, she explains basically the genesis of the beast as being kind of a manifestation of Cain's insanity and death. Right. Yeah. But I I think it's funny because she almost literally says that directly into the camera. Yeah. Well, that whole bit, yeah. 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 It's at this point as well that I think Seton's kind of steadfast refusal to believe, despite being confronted with an insane amount of evidence, and kind of believes that this is all somehow Caroline's master plan. I just find at this point it's equal parts hilarious and irritating. Um, Seton, Seton at that point, when she gets to the end of this very long and very profound-sounding spiel, uh, he just immediately says, well, that's a bunch of crap that doesn't mean anything. Yeah, that was amazing. <laughs> yeah, I think from her perspective, he was turning a little bit Avatar for the audience for me at that point. <laughs> <laughs> that's my favorite yeah. line in the film. I, and, you know, I think I, some of uh, some of the writing for, for Tenjina's dialogue there is actually pretty good, but it, then, yeah, then, like, and you're starting to buy it in a weird way, like the, the innocence is a gift we're given, you know, like, it's like, oh, okay, I, I'm starting to make sense. And then, yeah, his line, you're just like, oh, God, this guy. <laughs> yeah. Although we, we don't we don't have to put up with him for too much longer. Although, um, <laughs> but before we lose him, you get to the point that we, uh, the scene that we talked about already, we don't really need to dig too much into it again, but it's, um, Tangina's we, death. Her death. We don't need qu- to dig out of it too much. I think it's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, Tangina's air quotes, death. The Catalan quotient ramps up uh, dramatically around about here as well. Uh, oh, they're, ta- they're coming thick and fast. Uh, definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is this is this is where we lose Seton. Yeah, um, Donna pushes him down an elevator shaft, which is the first real indicator um, that it's not that Donna hasn't really come back. Yeah, this was a weird thing to me too with with the coverage and and the shot choices because again, amazing amazing camera direction and cinematography for much of the movie. Mm-hmm. And then moments like this, he opens the door, looks down, and there's like a little bit of like a sound that indicates that it's an open shaft. But Mm -hmm. how hard would it have been to just point a camera down an elevator shaft and get his point of view first? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then cut to him being pushed in. It's the, my brain just kept going, I want to see it. I want to see it. I want to see it. Like, Mm -hmm. it didn't feel like tension that you don't see it because sometimes not showing something is just good tension this just felt like a weird missing shot it was very odd i agree yeah yeah definitely the stuff leading up to that though where the the kind of doors are opening and closing and caroline's in there smiling at him um that stuff's really good oh yeah yeah i think this is where like i was always under the impression that this was the section of the film where heather o'rourke had died and they were just using a double but this is actually on the script i mean they just i think they were trying to mirror the 
first movie, I forget what happens if it happens in the second, where Caroline just goes away for a portion and they have to get her back. Mm-hmm. But at this point in this movie, it feels like she's more the protagonist. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the first movie, she wasn't like the protagonist necessarily. So I, it, it felt weird to me that they made the choice of just like shuffling her off to the other side. And then we start following uh, Scarrett and Nancy Allen for a while. Yeah. Also, I don't know who made the sound decision to have um, Seton's death kind of punctuated, but sounds pretty much like a comedy splat. Yeah. Yeah, it was a weird sound. <laughs> the only th- like I think you said, Mitch, the only thing missing was like a slide whistle before the <laughs> before the splat. Like, it, it's. I mean, it's pretty funny overall, and a, a, a fine end to an absolute irritant. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I at this point, uh, this this film started to lose me enormously in terms of just like uh, me just completely losing the thread of what of what's actually happening uh, here because Pat and Bruce obviously get stuck in a room that's filled that's filling with water. Mm-hmm. At which point, uh, Tangina reappears long enough to say uh, to just say the words "outside in" uh, and then gives them a kind of amulet. And then they reemerge just in a car park. And at that point, I had so many questions, I didn't know where to begin. I wrote down here, you shouted, what the fuck is happening at this point? Yeah, yeah, it's weird. This is where it all feels like weird, weird rewrites or something, because it doesn't feel like anything narrative is happening in this section. It's just like, they're escaping from, they're just running around. I mean, some of the effects are good, like the effect of the water coming up yeah. in the oh, yeah, that's freezer great. is really great. But then like, what's the point of all of it? It just feels a little... Yeah, it doesn't feel well thought out. I would say that that you're absolutely right with that, Graham. And I would say that the scene after they emerge from the the freezer and the water, um, where they're in the frozen car park, yeah, um, where they kind of kind of beset by these sentient cars, uh, it just seems like at this point it's just lurching from set piece to set piece, from idea to idea, and it just it, it's a bit rudderless. Yeah, I mean, like why why the car? I mean, it just is a weird choice that doesn't seem to connect to anything it's odd yeah i mean um, there was <laughs> straight out of the back of uh so as you say they reappear in the frozen car park they're attacked by the sentient cars bruce successfully blows up the sentient cars then they come back <laughs> then they kind of resurface in the car park again except all the sprinklers are going off at this point at which point bruce grabs pat hugs her and triumphantly says it's over and i was kind of saying like by what metric is this over i don't understand yeah like you yeah you don't have your daughter you don't have caroline you don't i mean it's so weird he's so confident about it it's so obviously <laughs> like the ploy of like you think it's done but like they'd so half-hearted <laughs> yeah was, but, like, because i just hey when he said it's over i was like how what have you done to 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 make it over but yeah, you, they yeah. have an extremely protracted and quite passionate kiss when they really should be checking on everything checking the progress of everything no they think the game's won um it's, it's extremely blase about that no, that's uh, but that's the thing that I think really threw me about it. He says it with such conviction. Yeah, and and they really, yeah, it's a weird thing. And I mean, there's some weird moments like that with them earlier too, when they're in the elevator with Tangina, and he like he steps up to Nancy Allen and he like kisses her hand and smiles at her, and Tangina is like, "That's good. Your love for each other is good." But I understand why they wanted to put that line in. Mm-hmm. But Scarrett going over to Nancy Allen and doing that feels so wildly out of place for that moment where they should be on pins and needles. Yeah, absolutely. And you're like, what? Why are they doing this right now? And I think the arrival of the sassy friend as well yeah. is so bizarre. <laughs> I'd forgotten about that. Uh, like, yeah. I guess it's to kind of try to inject a kind of air of normalcy back into things. Yeah, I think I think it's to I think it's to seed in our heads more that it is over because she come back and she just talks about the gal- the exhibit like normal, yeah. and then just basically just like I'm heading I'm heading home kind of thing. So I think it's all it's all framed to make it look normal and over. 
but there's so transparently 15 minutes left. Yeah, yeah, it's so weird. Uh, I mean, I think maybe they thought they were making a a play on the idea that like a big explosion means that the movie's over, but that almost feels too smart for what. <laughs> that feels like a little. I mean, like that feels like a reach. Yeah. <laughs> um, pretty unlikable stuff after this because they head up back up in the lift, and this is the point where Pat talks about sending that brat home on the first thing smoking, basically. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing, but that's roughly what she says. Um, kind of at the earliest opportunity, she's going to pat her home. Definitely calls her a brat. And uh, yeah, I was kind of like, God, you're kind of a dick. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like in the... I don't remember. It's been a while since I've seen the first one, but I feel like they... they I forget both the actor, actors' names who play the parents, but they, uh, you know, they're smoking a joint and they're hanging out and uh, mm-hmm. they're just... Um, they, they feel like real people who have real concerns about their family, and that's not the case here. And and Scarrett and Nancy Allen are both great actors. They just aren't given the right stuff to work with in, in these moments, and you don't really buy that they are real people here. Just, they just feel or like a, puppets. Yeah, they don't. And then at no point from the first moment you see them together do they feel like a couple. Yeah. Um, although that, I think we learn that they're relatively freshly married. They're relatively. New yeah, I mean, this would be a, like a you know second marriage kind of thing, and. I think that explains it a little bit, but also I think yeah. a bit of a stretch is the leap to get uh, that that they they manage to figure out exactly how to beat the beast by unraveling Tangina's outside in thing. Yeah, that's a big stretch. <laughs> yeah, because they figure out basically that because um, obviously right when they're in the lift, Kane kind of reappears again. Of course, I think it's stuck between four ninety seven and ninety eight, I believe. Climb out, and then they realize that what outside in refers to is that if they can get to outside the building, it's kind of out with the realm of his control or something. I believe. Yeah, except we've already seen him outside the building, other places, like the coffee cup thing. Like he's like Kane controlled the inside, but not the outside. In what world is that true? He's on the lift in the first minute of the film. Like, I mean, maybe Scarrett's supposed to believe that, but as the audience, we're just like, huh? Jesus Christ, that does not make a lick of sense. You're right. I had not even considered that. It's it's such a weird. I, I mean, the only thing I can imagine is cocaine. I think cocaine <laughs> yeah. the script. I think people are like, "This is great. This is a great idea. Let's keep writing. Great, great job." Yeah, Which, we, we, you know. Um, on the one hand, I love I love movies like that, but it's you know, um, <laughs> on scrutiny. We did um, uh, we did Jaws of Revenge with AJ Bowen a couple of weeks ago, and there was a couple of oh, times. Yeah, there was a couple of times in that where we got to a point where it's like, why? It's like because cocaine is why. Yeah. Yeah, I would say even the last episode we did, which was Masters of the Universe, the same thing again. Yeah, I was. And gonna... you know what? I kind of love all these movies, so maybe, maybe the world needs more cocaine. I think maybe that's a takeaway. <laughs> <laughs> I think Hollywood needs to do a lot more cocaine. <laughs> we always, we always don't come... quote me on this. We... No, 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 no. no. I will deny it. <laughs> we always, we always come... pro cocaine confession. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we so once they're out on the so once they escape out into the building, the means of uh, getting there uh-huh. is Chekhov's window wiping unit. <laughs> sure, <laughs> which for some reason has a shovel on it. Yep. Um, yeah, they, they need a shovel. Well, actually, he grabs the shovel uh, off the roof. I I remember that because right, I was yeah. like, why is he grabbing a shovel? <laughs> <laughs> like, why doesn't he grab anything else that can break a window? Like a pipe. <laughs> Or yep. Rick, he grabs a flat <laughs> shovel. It's mm. one of the worst. I, I would, I would argue, um, being at that height with those kind of reinforced skyscraper windows and swinging, I would argue oh, that yeah. that is one extremely dangerous for the swinger. That's a yeah. massive, it's a risky yeah. venture. Two, I don't think it would break those windows. No, and, and I don't think it does. I think Kane. Oh, it kind of grabs them, pulls them yeah. through, and also extremely dangerous for anyone who happens to be passing below. Yeah. 
I mean, did you see the sparks coming off of it? I think that was practical. I think when he <laughs> the sparks coming off of the the, uh, the shovel. Does that make any sense? Because well, sparks come off of that's so weird. I didn't, now I'm thinking about it. I'm like, yeah, I, I mean, did I, they have the sparks? I mean, I don't. I mean, I I I don't know. I don't. Yeah. I, I'm I, I'm not I'm not convinced that tracks all the way. <laughs> Based on my experience hitting windows with shovels. Are you uh, telling me, Mitch, that there might be some kind of inaccuracy or inconsistency on in this film? <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, given, given my, my limited experience of hitting reinforced windows with shovels, uh, I couldn't say with any confidence. But yeah, you're right. I think it is, it is weird. It is weird. Um, also here we have a standoff between, um, a standoff of sorts between Caroline Sorov mm-hmm. um, and Pat, who lies to her face about loving her. <laughs> yep. In a in a long protracted monologue. That's yes. like three pages. Good lord, yeah. And another standoff with Kane um and Pat, which is ludicrous in just about every way. I love that um when Kane kinda leaps out of nowhere and attacks Pat, she falls onto like a pile of corpses, obviously one of them's uh, like Donna's corpse, and she sees one that's Bruce and he's like desiccated, but he's got like a hilarious fake moustache. Stuck, yeah. to the, stuck to the mummified corpse, so that you know it's uh, yeah. it's him. Yeah, absolutely. This kind of this this film resolves itself. And, well, it doesn't resolve itself, and that's the problem. <laughs> yeah, resolve is not the right. Word. I was going to say this this film ends. Um, uh, it just stops. It just stops. It's such a dead stop. But like, um, yeah, everyone's kind of figuring out. Caroline thinks that she needs to go because uh, he needs her to kind of guide him into the light kind of thing. The hitherto dead Tangina reappears and explains that she can do it and does and it just ends. But then the thing is, Carol Ann, who's saying all this, turns into Kane again. So do are we to trust that every time we see Carol Ann in a mirror after she's pulled through the puddle, that it is Carol Ann? Because I don't know if it... it, I mean, maybe this is thinking way too much about something that was not that about in the script. I feel like it's not. I feel like she's being... Because she's like, we just need that necklace. You don't love me. We just need that necklace. Because it's clearly supposed to be like a trick to get the necklace. But also she is... Like, Pat is working out her issues with Caroline. So it's like, why are you working out your issues with Kane? Kane doesn't care. Like, what? Yeah. Like, if that's if that's actually Kane, why are you saying all this stuff? Yeah, that was that was a large part of what I found... Of what about the last 15 minutes or so of this I found so disorienting. Because anytime yeah. anyone appeared anywhere, I was like, are you actually you? Or are you the middle one? Or are you actually Kane? And like when people were saying things to each other, I had no idea what the stakes were because I didn't know who anyone was. <laughs> yeah, and so I, having looked at the script now, uh, I have some insight into this. Okay, <clears throat> but I will say the shot after Pat goes in and then stands up, and it's just the shot looking at her in the room. It's a big wide shot of her in the room, and then you see the room beyond her in the mirror, and it's all icy and the shafts of light and the strobes. It's an unbelievably beautiful image. That is just so top-notch and it's so frustrating that it doesn't stick the landing it's just like you she gets in there and i'm like oh shit this is this is the world this is the world i want in this movie i want to be up at the top of a a high rise in a portal to the netherworld with ice everywhere and strobe lights it's so great i mean it's just like fucking 10 strobes going at once all the time and it it just turfs it and it's so Mm. such a bummer but the the dvd or the blu-ray has two interesting things it has a deleted scene version of the ending right? and it also has some script pages. So the deleted scene is like part of what was – the script pages are longer and they didn't shoot all of it. But a little bit they did shoot of the script pages is that after Pat goes in, instead of just finding some corpses, she finds everyone frozen and encased in ice. And okay. it's brutal. There's a shot of Carol Ann with her 
face like open and screaming just encased in ice and it's really scary <laughs> it's like it's like upsetting and then you see donna and you see tom scarrett and they're all and i think scott and they're all encased in ice and the standoff with kane kind of is the same but instead of uh chopping his head off and then it melting tangina like holds up her necklace and then his face melts off his head it's just like a weird different staging of it and then she i think she takes him to the light and then they come out and it's just like the reshot version that they did in the film where they step out of the light. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead of it being a fake Caroline, because um, Heather O'Rourke had died at that point, in the originally shot ending, it is actually Heather O'Rourke, and, and Scott is there as well. So in the actual ending of the film, Scott's just gone forever. You, he never comes <laughs> yeah. back. We were, he doesn't come out with them. We were talking about that. Like, what the fuck? What happened to Scott? Poor Scott. I, they must just not have been able to get him for that day. It's so weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it is the, the, this other ending is just abrupt, just as abrupt. It's just like different. And then reading the script pages, there was this whole other sequence that was supposed to happen, and not all of the script pages are there to tie the threads together. But apparently, Scarrett was supposed to get into a big fight with the art sculptures, right. and then end up up in that uh, loft, Caroline's room as well. So it wasn't just Pat at that point; it was supposed to be Scarrett having a big um, fight there, and Kane was supposed to like turn into this giant ice head that they battle. And then he has this like ice breath that freezes everyone and like flies them all around the room and they all get like melded together as like a giant ice sculpture. And then that's when it cuts into what uh, was in the deleted scene. So like, I mean, this is like four pages of crazy, impossible to shoot stuff yeah, yeah. that clearly they didn't have the budget for and got cut. And it, it sounds like from the writer in his interview, this stuff got cut going into production, like right at the last minute. So right. they were just like, what do we do? And they just came up with an ending that was kind of bullshit. Um, but then a year later, they, after Heather O'Rourke died and after the film was cut, they realized that the ending wasn't working, but just the pieces didn't connect. So they reshot all they could, which was just that last shot of, or, or I guess was the, the little bit of the standoff with Kane where she cuts his head off, uh, and his head melts. And then, um, the weird thing with Tangina taking him into the light and then them emerging from the light. It's just a little more drawn out, so it's not as abrupt, but it still like doesn't resolve anything. Right. And they didn't have Caroline, so it. I don't know. It, it's such a disappointing ending for such a promising film. Yeah, and and then we believe, I suppose, that Tangina taking Kane away uh, into the light is certainly the end of the, I guess, the Kane arc and the Kane character. And then the film completely undoes that by having the lightning and Kane laughing, kind of. Like- yeah, it really does, and that just seems like a weird. And I don't think that's in the script. I think that's a weird, um, probably studio thing. Where they're yeah. like, we got to leave him with a hook for the next one. Yeah. Um, well, at least Tangina gets to say the line that, uh, having listened to the Masters of the Universe episode that everyone waited for, she gets to say, I have the power. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh. <laughs> um, which is so weird and out of place. And she says it like raising her hands up in this goofy way where there's no possible way to take it seriously. <laughs> <laughs> and also Kane, who's supposed to be this like insane force of evil is just like, yeah, cool. I'll go with you. Yeah, he's totally passive. Like at the end, like, he's, he's completely like he, all the fire's gone from him. Like he's, he feels like kind of castrated almost like he's just nothing now. It's a really weird decision to just strip someone of all that evil that has been built up over the course of two films. Yeah, I think that the reason the the misconception that Heather O'Rourke had died during the making of the film is endured is because it really feels like they lost her in the last third of this movie and didn't know what to do, which isn't the case, but that's what it feels like. It's so weird. It's like the 
tail wagging the dog. It's just, I don't know, it's such a head scratcher because there's so much money. I mean, like having been involved in a lot of productions and mm-hmm. the way these things go, things just spin out of control. And, you know, you do your best to, to, to manage the chaos. And it sounds like this is this film. It seems like this film is the victim of a lot of chaos and a lot of like really incredible ambition and misplaced focus because Gary Sherman's, you know, a a very good director for the type of thing he does. And some of the things that he does in this film are just outstanding. It just seems like one entire aspect of storytelling was kind of forgotten. (laughs) I, I will still stand by this film as a film that I don't think is a great film, but I think it's one of the most ambitious beautiful misfires that I've ever seen. Okay. And I, every time I do go back to it, I get something from it and it's inspiring. I mean, yeah, just so much craft and detail and yeah. the cinematography and the color palette. Oh my God. When they get into like the blue world where everything's just like this harsh blue, icy cold lighting is so awesome. And it's so weird and different. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll say I saw this for the first time today and um, I, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll admit, I mean, especially as it goes towards the end, there's elements of it that I find to be extremely hard work. Um, but um, I think hearing some of uh, what you've told us about kind of like how some things were written, how some things were supposed to connect and kind of things, I think it's a lot of the time, we've had a few of these on the show where people have brought a film that a lot of the time when I watch it, there's been elements that have kind of on the face of it not made sense. And there's always been some kind of a story attached to why there's been some sort of kind of logical disconnect. So what I would say is off the back of this, I would say that I will probably now rewatch it with that understanding and previously, I might not have bothered. Right, okay. <laughs> but you will rewatch it. Yeah, I could see myself going back to it. I think just off the back of off the back of what we've discussed and kind of some of the points we've arrived at, I could see myself watching it again, for sure. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, I feel like you could rewatch this film up to the, like, hour mark, uh, you know. Or you could watch, like, 20 minutes to the hour mark over and over again and get so much out of it. Yeah. First 15, 20 minutes and the last 15, 20 minutes are, kind, you know, just kind of don't offer that that much. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely agreed. Um, Andy, you got anything to add? Just to say, I mean, I kind of agree with what, what Graham was saying about it being an, a, a really strong technical achievement. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, yeah. and like I said earlier, with some stuff that is super impressive and very, very clever, but I, I just feel like story-wise, I didn't know what the fuck it was yeah, doing. It I didn't know it. where it was going. Um, and uh, it is a shame because... It's Heather O'Rourke's one song. It was taking the the remake of Poltergeist out of the equation. It's the end of it. It's kind of flat end for a franchise. Yeah. I mean, there was the TV show in the 90s, which I never saw. The the Poltergeist The Legacy? Is that that what it's called? Yeah, I never saw it. Um, I wonder if it's any good. But, I, you know, I I love this thing that we talked about it before a little bit, but this, this 80s thing of the, you know, sometimes it's called like boiler room horror, you know, for Nightmare on Elm Street. But, like, this idea that like a bad reality can permeate the good reality and and that nightmare reality is untrustworthy and Mm -hmm. psychedelic and weird. And I I mean like, you know, games like silent Hill have taken from that as well. And I, I don't know where that started. Like what's the origin of what, like now stranger things has popularized it again with the the Mm -hmm. upside down, but I think they don't go as far as they could with it. It's very standard. (laughs) The upside down is like, okay, it sucks here. It's kind of, um, to me, feels very safe and kind of yeah. just like we're not going to put too much thought into this. I, I kind of feel a little bit the same about the further in Insidious. Oh, yeah. Okay. Thank you. I like uh, the further, but I I only seen the first one. I know it gets a little different than the, the later ones. Uh-huh. 
Uh, yeah, the further down that rabbit hole you go, I think that like the more problems kind of the more problems kind of arise. Graham, before we finish up, uh, I want to talk about just uh, like any projects you've got on the go just now that you'd like to talk about, but specifically uh, Deadwax. Oh yeah, um, which uh, I watched the whole of today. <laughs> oh cool. Uh, I, I had already I had already watched it, and I, I think we we touched on it very briefly in a, in one of our minisodes. Um, I thought I think it's great. Um, so oh, thank I, you. I will say that. Obviously, just about everybody who knows anything about you knows that you're a sound obsessive, I think is probably fair to say. <laughs> um, well, I, you know, I think that's true. I I, uh, I don't think of myself as a sound obsessive, just as like a, I guess, you know what it is, is that uh, because not a lot of directors are sound obsessive, it, it is more pronounced to me, but you know, it's the visual, the sound, everything, it's it's all the same thing to me. And mm-hmm. so I, I tend to put as much emphasis on the sound of music as I do on the visual, which may be unique, I'm not sure, but it it definitely is uh seems to be what people pick up from from my work and, and i do appreciate that because it's i feel like sound is 50 percent of what you're getting in the cinematic experience sound of music yeah yeah and uh and it, it doesn't always feel like enough attention's paid to that 50 percent. so it's nice to uh to get some attention for for having done that so when you were kind of putting the project together what was it um was like this is what i'm going to do i'm going to do something about record collecting yeah, I mean, it was an idea I had for a long time that was a very uh, simple idea. Um, just the idea that there was a record that affected you. I mean, it's a very basic archetype, and it goes back to Lovecraft. And mm-hmm. I've gotten some shit lately for uh, for people thinking I've ripped off like 10 different things. And it's like, well, huh. yeah, there's, ten, there's, there's a lot of things that, uh, <laughs> that take this concept. We all kind of go in different directions with them, but it's not an original concept to anyone, I don't think. Uh, it's Pandora's box is all yeah. it is. Mm-hmm. And um and Kiss Me Deadly was a big influence. Um, and, and I just particularly love record collecting. I'm a big vinyl collector. And um, I wanted to marry that idea of the sort of, well, it's a little bit of a misdirect of the haunted record. Uh, it turns out that that's only partially true. Um, yeah. And then with uh, marry that with film noir and with a female protagonist. And yeah, take it to some unexpected places and, and set up, hopefully, I have no idea if we're going to do more or not, but I hope we do, set up a, a deeper, weirder, world past uh, the entry point of these first two hours as uh, i know you mentioned david lynch earlier and uh, how you you kind of perceive david lynch to be kind of the the origin of your love for strobe lights um, yeah. but uh, yeah there's a real strong david lynch vibe all the pretty much all the way through it oh yeah yeah lynch i mean firewalk with me is the reason i became a filmmaker i saw it when i was 12 i think it was a year after it came out and uh and I, I loved movies and, and I kind of was veering towards realizing that I liked art. And, uh, it was the first time I realized that a, a film could be more than just a commercial thing. It could be art. And so I've always had a really strong, uh, respect and, and admiration for, uh, for his work. And, and the fact that he does sort of, you know, he does sound design as well and kind of mm-hmm. takes everything, uh, that's part of the filmmaking process as part of one gestalt, like making everything more than the sum of its parts. Yeah. Uh, and I think all my favorite directors are like that. What, at the point, um, kind of obviously it's a it's a series, but it's kind of little kind of ten fifteen minute chunks. Was that always kind of present in the writing, or had it been written in a kind of different form prior to that? You know, it was always part of the deal. Um, Shutter came to me and and uh, asked me if I. Well, it's a long story, but basically they they said uh, we'd like to do a short form series. Uh, do you have any ideas for that? And I had this idea. And I, I they'd actually wanted a different script that I didn't, that was a feature script and I didn't feel it was right to try to right. rework that into 15 minute chunks. Okay. Um, so I wanted to use something new. So I pitched this idea. And so from the moment it was pitched, 
um, it was always going to be broken out into these episodic chunks. But because right. I knew it was going to be around the length of a feature film, that's how I approached everything aside from the breaking of the arcs. So I just treated every episode, all eight acts, as just little chapters. And I just wanted to make sure each of those chapters had a beginning, middle, and end, a clear focus, you know, essentially a cold open that grabs you, a tag that hooks you for the next one, and use it as, an, as a, like a, a exercise almost to, to take my experience writing longer form stuff or, or uh, narrative, uh, you know, feature stuff mm-hmm. and work that into like a serial format, um, which was something I hadn't done before. So that was a good opportunity to try it. Well, yeah, like I say, um, yeah, I thought it was great. Yeah, um, I think it comes out great too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. So Dead Wax is available on Shudder now everywhere. Yeah, Shutter Original. Um, anything else upcoming that you want to talk about at all? Um, I don't know how much I... I'm always involved with stuff I, I'm not allowed to talk about. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I will say that uh, Glass Eye Picks, uh, Larry Fessenden's company, um, mm-hmm. has something called Creepy Christmas, which is uh, put together by Beck Underwood, uh, who's married to Larry. And she is a fantastic uh, artist and uh, filmmaker. And she um, she curates this, and she did it 10 years ago, uh, and it's an advent calendar for December, where every day there's a different uh, short, creepy oh, Christmas film. Yeah, I think I saw uh, last this. time, yeah, yeah it's, it's, there's a lot of great people involved. Yeah. Jen Wexler's doing one. Glenn, doing one. Glenn's doing one as well, isn't he? Glenn McQuaid, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, we a bunch of us did them 10 years ago, and so this is our uh, our return back. So mine will be up in a week or two, I think. But check out the ones that are, I think it's creepychristmasfest.com, or just Google creepy Christmas films, and, and you can find it. But there's some really great little, like, two-minute Christmas shorts, and there'll be a new one every day. Oh, cool. Sweet. Excellent. Graham, where can people get in touch with it? Like, where can people, like, follow you and the social media stuff? Uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Graham Resnick, and that's Resnick with a Z. There you go. Pretty, and, pretty easy. Yeah. <laughs> man about man about town leaving my house once every four months because i have a toddler <laughs> <laughs> uh graham thanks so much for doing this yeah thank, thank you, you so much this for having me this is a lot of fun great. yeah and uh there you go much that's another one that you've now seen mm-hmm. thanks guys so i'm not gonna lie i got more out of an in-depth conversation about Porter grace 3 than i thought i would <laughs> i was just amazed that you, that you said you would go back and rewatch it i'm not entirely convinced i can see myself rewatching this anytime soon it's not going to be something i'm going to rush back to no i think like troubled productions and things that have been heavily kind of uh you know studio meddling and uh some ideas that were in there that didn't get fully to fruition i think that once i know stories about things like that i always like to kind of let that inform a second viewing right because i think that sometimes i'm of a mind to be less harsh about them when i know that <laughs> um so not that i think i'm a particular i'm particularly harsh generally but like um, oh, i would say so no but um yeah i do quite like doing that so uh big thank you to Mr. Graham Resnick for coming on, talking Portuguese 3 with us and yeah, kind of just putting that idea in my head to maybe go back to it. Cool, and of course like we just mentioned, uh, Dead Wax available now on Shudder everywhere. Yeah, very, very cool, uh, very cool project, Dead yeah. Wax. Yeah, I'm very into it. That was, that was very interesting. And Ted Remy's in it and he's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess, well, we're done for another one and uh, we're heading at high speeds towards Christmas. Yes, yes. Ding dong, uh, as you may well have heard from our festive theme tune. Thanks, Mitch. <laughs> hey, no problem. I finally got around to doing it. Uh, <laughs> so we'll be outlining our plan for what's happening over the festive season, probably on Monday. Yes, indeed. Um, yeah, we'll, have 
yeah, we'll have a more concrete plan in place by then. However, what we are still doing is uh, looking for your suggestions for a listener choice episode. Yeah, yep, they're still trickling in, and they're still some are great, some are frankly terrible. <laughs> Thanks for those ones. <laughs> yeah, some of them swing a little wide on the concept, I think. But um, but it has been really interesting uh, reading the stories, even just even with things that we probably won't use. I think that it's always interesting to under- like to hear people's connections to films, oh, yeah. why they would choose them, things like that. So um, yeah, it's been really nice. Uh, getting into some of the stories that are attached to that but basically if you've missed out on this we have got a previous guest to come back on they've agreed they're coming back on at some point in the future and we will be discussing the film they won't be choosing it you will yes um so what we want you to do email only for this one get in touch strong language violent scenes at gmail.com tell us which film you would pick and why you think uh well why you think it's great mm-hmm. and why you think it's worthy of a second look and also just a little bit of a story about your relationship with the film and yeah we're going to take some of our favorites put them in a hat draw them and uh, us and a mystery person well, will go uh, on and uh, either be impressed and happy or um, despondent and uh, miserable miserable yeah. Yeah. either way we should have some fun <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah chuckle chuckles uh, but yeah we will be back on Monday if you want to get in touch before then you can do uh, Facebook and Instagram we are Strong Language Violent Scenes you can tweet us as well at Strong Violent PC and email scenes at gmail.com yep and, and this uh, has been said once or twice before but we are just about everywhere that you can get podcasts now. Very much. And wherever you are listening, please, if you just take a couple of wee minutes to just like us or share us or give us a five stars or leave a wee comment, review, whatever it is that you do. Special thanks, by the way, to our pals at Podbean for hosting us. Indeed. So we'll be back Monday. Join us then if you can. In the meantime, don't forget, that's a bunch of crap that doesn't mean anything. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean.